We're going to begin in verse 37 of Mark 15. And um, so going to be flipping or clicking there. But hey, one of the things, we're in this new study uh, called Christ the Fulfillment. And uh, so I, mean, I don't know about you, but I've got, I've got two kids at home. And what I'm learning more and more about children um, is that children have a short-sighted view of the world. Um, and uh, oftentimes, I'm just going to speak for my children. I don't, I don't want to judge your children if you have children in the room, okay? For my children, they can be selfish in their view of the world. And apparently I'm the only one. And I'm glad, I'm glad that we as adults grow out of that, and that's not our view anymore as adults. Um, but one of the things, for real though, like the more, what I learn about our kids is they can see an event that takes place, and oftentimes the only lens through which they have to view that event is how does it affect me, right? And we can oftentimes be the same way. And what we're trying to do in this study, in this study called Christ the Fulfillment, what we're trying to do is open our eyes to the things that you and I don't see. Because when it comes to spiritual things, we're the exact same way as my kids. We see the event of Jesus' life and ministry as we looked at last week. And we look at it only through the lens of what we see, what makes sense to us as 21st century people living in America. And we miss the bigger picture. We say, and today we're going to talk about the death of Jesus and how oftentimes we say things when we think about the death of Jesus. Jesus died for my sins. He's my Savior. Both of those statements are true. When we think of Jesus as the one who came to live and die for 21st century Americans, we miss the larger scope of what's going on. And so what I'm proposing in this message series is that the best part about Jesus that we see in the Bible is not what you and I often think of. What we miss is that Jesus is not just our Savior, he's the Christ. We saw last week that this word Christ is a New Testament word for an Old Testament idea. God was going to redeem the world through a Messiah. That was the Old Testament idea. Tons of future promises of God that the prophets, all through the Old Testament, if you're not familiar, I'm talking about the first part of the Bible before Jesus comes on the earth. There's prophets who are speaking here. There are these future promises of God, and they're getting wrapped up around this idea of a coming Messiah, a rescuer, literally an anointed one. And last week we saw that Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, declares... You are the Christ. And oftentimes we think about that. Man, we're, we're so used to calling Jesus. Uh, if you are like I am, I call Jesus Christ. Or I, sometimes I just refer to him as Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ. We use all these terms. But what we, have to, what we recognized last week is that it's not just a cool word. It wasn't a nickname for Jesus. They didn't invent it. Peter was using a loaded word. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that he is the perfect fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, all the festivals, all the laws, all of everything was pointing forward to one who would bring restoration to all of creation. This is the story of the Bible. So last week, we saw Jesus through his life and ministry. He proved to be this, this Christ, the Messiah. And this week, we're going to look at Mark 15, and we're going to see how Jesus' death and sacrifice prove the same thing. So we're going to look at some, some Old Testament ideas that maybe you haven't thought about. First service, there are several people who tell me, I never thought about that before. I've never seen that before. So I pray the same is true here today. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read beginning in verse 37, and I'll stop whenever I choose to stop. I don't remember where it is, okay? 
Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. We're coming onto the scene. Jesus is already hanging on the cross. He let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, that in Jesus, uh, we don't just have this personal Savior, God, who, who came to die only for us, but God, one who came uh, to restore all of creation, as we see in your word. And God, we don't have, uh, Jesus wasn't plan B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, he was plan A from the very beginning. All all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to him. And God, I pray that today that you'd open our eyes uh, to appreciate the death of Jesus in some new ways today. Um, God, open our eyes to see the heaviness um, with which we should view the death of Jesus. God, we love you and we ask you, as always, God, to teach us to know you today and to be here with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, so here at East... We're developing, we're try, I'm trying to develop some terminology, some, some terms, some phrases uh, that maybe you won't hear in other churches, but we're trying to do that so that we understand how each other are reading the Bible. We're trying to uh, set, kind of set up our own language that helps us read the Bible together to be able to talk to one another about what God's showing us through our personal studies. One of the terms that I've tried, I'm trying to get in our vernacular is the word hyperlinks, okay? You're familiar with hyperlinks. You go to any website. What you're going to see are these little glowing blue words. Oftentimes they're underlined or italics or something. They're these little words. And when you click on them, what does it do? It takes you somewhere else. I'll give you a great example, and I'll use it as a sneaky way to announce something that's coming up. You'll notice that. All right? If you go to, our, if you go to events.lindsaylaneeast.org, which you should go to every week to see events that are coming up, when you scroll down to May 15th, You'll see baby dedication. Baby dedication. Baby dedication is an important thing for us here at East. We do it as often as we need to, at least once a year. But it's a time where our parents here at East can stand before the Lord and their church family, make a commitment to raise their child for the Lord. We call it baby dedication. It's really more of a parent commissioning than it is a baby dedication. And when you look at that date on our website, when you scroll down there, you're going to see a description. And within that description, you're going to find... Three words or phrases that are blue. And guess what happens when you click it? When you click on the one that says form, guess where it carries you? To a form where you can sign up to be a part of our baby dedication. There's another one where it says if you have questions, you can email Terry. And Terry's in blue. Guess what happens when you click on Terry? Email pops up. Yep. And Terry's name's already in the two line. You don't even have to add it. How easy is that? It's easy. Thank you for answering. And then if you click on baby dedication service, three words together that are blue, it'll carry you to the very moment in last year's service 
where we did our baby dedication, just so you can see what it looks like and know that we're not going to do anything creepy with your child while they're up here on stage with you. Like it's, it's just, just praying for you. So go and take care of that today, parents, okay? There's also a spot for you to upload a picture, but it's not a... All right. So those different colored words are called hyperlinks on our website. And they represent different locations on our website, uh, different forms, different sets of information. Each one of them, listen to me, each one of those things, each one of those represents something else. There's, it carries a weightiness. There's something behind that word. It looks like the word form, but there's something behind that, a whole new page to be discovered. Listen, what we're trying to argue for here at Ace is the Bible is the same way. If we'll become good students of God's word here, words that seem right now to you as you read through it, they just, they're, they look like they're in black and white. If we'll be good students of God's word, they'll begin to glow. Not literally. It's not that trippy, okay? But figuratively, these words will begin to pop off the page. And if that seems strange to you, just one more commercial, if y'all are okay with that. If that seems strange to you, you're like, Heath, what are you doing? What are you on? There's no, that The Bible doesn't work that way. Uh, I would encourage you to get involved in our foundations group. Our foundations group meets every Wednesday night. Um, when, when our groups meet. And they've been going through the Old Testament. They're actually just started going through the New Testament. Um, and it start, this week is the last week to get in. We kick you out until the fall. Because this is the last week to get into foundations. Because otherwise you're going to come in the middle and it'll be awkward and weird. So jump in this week if you'd like to be a part of the New Testament. But they've been going through the Old Testament. And I'm going to put them on the spot because some of them are in the room. Some of them have been going through foundations. So I'm fixing to put them on the spot. What they've been learning through the Old Testament, they've not been moving verse by verse through the Old Testament. They've been learning these hyperlinks, these themes that we see run through the whole Bible. So people in the room who have been through foundations, give me one. What was your favorite going through the Old Testament? Not everybody at one time. What was your favorite hyperlink or theme that kind of ran through the Bible? Y'all traced all those? Well, wait, I promise you. I was in student ministry for seven or eight and a half years. I can sit here all day. Redemption was one. Yeah, yeah. Of course you were, Bethany. <laughs> Brother and sister think alike there. Hey, well, I'll tell you, my favorite, my favorite, and again, I've taught the curriculum, and, and I know Jerry and Kim Davis do a great job of leading that now. My favorite one is the image of God. Uh, the image of God is just such a cool hyperlink. And when you see it in Genesis 2, God creates mankind in his image. And it's this beautiful picture, and then it just ends. Like, it doesn't tell you really what that means. And then throughout the rest of the story, you see it unfolding of what it means to be made in the image of God. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Amen? And so there's these hyperlinks. That's what we're trying to get across. There's these hyperlinks. And so today, what we're going to do is I'm going to show you two things that are going on in Mark 15. Two hyperlinks that are uh, that are really important. One of them's there, and one of them's actually not there, which is somehow how sometimes how the Bible works too. Okay, it's glowing, but it's not even there. So it'll make sense when we get there. The first one, the first thing that I see when I flip through there, there's more that we could look at. In fact, this sermon was originally an hour and a half, and I've cut it down to an hour and fifteen. So I'm just kidding; it wasn't that long. But I really wanted to cover more today, but we've pushed that uh, to next week uh, to be able to talk about the burial of Christ. But we're just going to look at his death. And the first thing we see Mark talk about is the temple, the temple. Now, here's what I know. 
most of us, uh, if you were even raised in church, you've probably never gone to a temple and made a sacrifice. That may exclude some of you, I don't know. But most of us have never done that. So when Mark begins to talk about the temple, we don't even necessarily have a category of which to think. But when, when, they, when, the, old, when the New Testament authors use the word temple, it's a, it's a word that we're familiar with, but we don't understand the weight behind it. So I want to help you understand the weight behind the word temple. You can drive by and see the Hindu temple. It's not far from here. Just to give you an idea of some sort of temple. But temples are important places for different reasons depending on the religion. In general, there are two main things that temples are used for. One, they're used as locations that people travel to so they can worship a God in a particular way or a unique way that they couldn't do at home. Right? So they're coming to worship at this particular place. Within some religions, they're also considered a hot spot for that God. Like, hey, this is where his presence is. Both of those things are true of the Old Testament temple that we see even in Jesus' day. There's this, this temple, and it's a place where people are coming to to worship God in a particular way, and it's also considered a hot spot for the presence of God. The temple Mark is speaking about here is actually what we call the second temple, temple round two, okay? And we see it being built. If you, if you know your Old Testament, you know that there's a couple books back to get, uh, uh, side by side, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. We read the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. That's the temple that still existed in Jesus' day. The Jews who had been scattered over the known world would come to this temple several times a year for particular feasts and acts of worship. And the temple practices, you need to know this, the temple practices were managed by the priests. And they were managed by one guy over them who was called the high priest. The high priest. But the temple that Jesus went to and his disciples went to and they worshiped God at was not the original temple. It wasn't temple round one. You have to go all the way back to King David to see the discussion of this first temple. David felt like God needed a temple. And so David made all these arrangements. And then his son Solomon, who took the throne after him, became king, began the work of the temple uh, for history people. Um, if you like timeline stuff, it was completed about the 10th or 9th century B.C. Okay, perspective. It stood there in Jerusalem for 400 years or so until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. This temple was impressive, though. I'm talking about it was incredible. It was large. It was ridiculously ornate. Everything was overlaid with gold. The finest, uh, finest of everything was there. They literally floated the cedars from Lebanon. They floated them down to build it with the best wood that they could find. This thing was incredible. And that's where the people worshipped before that. But even before that, I'm doing this wrong. This is this way. I always do that. Previous timeline would be this way for y'all, right? Okay. Even before that, the Bible talks about what we call the tabernacle. The tabernacle. We call it here the temple on wheels. That's what it was. It was before we had a physical temple. It was this tent, this big, huge tent. Think Fowler's Auction. Have you ever been to <laughs> Anyway, um, but this big, huge tent, but it also had walls, and it, it, it was instead of walls, it had these uh, these fabric um, and poles so that it could be picked up and moved as they were moving as really nomads through the land. But the most inner part, here we go, we're getting there. The most inner part of the tabernacle, the first temple, and the second temple, the most inner part 
was called the most holy place or also the holy of holies. This was believed to be the hottest spot of God's presence on earth. Is God Was God's presence and is God's presence everywhere around the earth? The Bible says there's a yes to that. God's presence is everywhere. However, the temple was viewed as this this place where God's presence was there in a unique, super physical way. So much so that people were not allowed in. Even the priests themselves, only the high priest was allowed to come in one time per year. And there was a whole process to get in the door. They blocked off this area with a huge curtain. I want you to listen to this is God describing to Moses how he wants the temple, uh, the, the curtain to be made. This is Exodus 26, beginning in verse 31. You were to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely spun linen with a design of a cherubim worked into it. Hang it on four gold-plated pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks that stand on four silver bases. Sounds like an important thing. Hang the curtain under the class. Bring the ark of the testimony there behind the curtain so the ark, or so the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. Put the mercy seat on the ark of the, or the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain. And the lamp stand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and put the table on the north side. You got that? We're not going to talk about all that, okay? But we are going to focus on when God told Moses to put this curtain up, it was less about containing his presence and more about keeping people out. To be in the presence of God when we have issues of sin seemed to them and is a really dangerous practice. To be in the presence of a holy God with sinful hearts could be dangerous for us. So they were super careful. When you come to my house, I don't know if y'all have this. Do y'all have a closet where everything goes when somebody's coming over? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I we do. The only thing that stinks about our house is it's typically the door, like it's the closet right inside the door. So here's the rule, noted. Here's the deal. When you come to my house, here's just a rule. Here's just a rule. And I'm going to do this at your house. If the door is closed, there's, hey, it's not going to be good for you or us if you open that sucker. (laughs) Unless it's a bathroom. But hey, any open door, you're welcome. But if there's a closed door, it's probably closed for a reason. It's not going to be good for you or us. If you open it, right? Now, that's a terrible, ex- terribly small example of what we're talking about here. Jesus, uh, God tells Moses, we need a curtain there because we need people to know that you're not supposed to come in here. This is not a place for you. It's not going to be good for you to enter this place. And so he put, they put this huge curtain up. Uh, the curtain was really important for the proper worship of God in the temple. Other, uh, other ancient Jewish writings tell us that this curtain uh, was... Like four inches thick. I don't even know how you, I mean, sewing people. I don't know. I guess you just layer stuff. I don't even know what that looks like. Four inches thick, though. So what does Mark tell us happened to this really important, crazy thick curtain? (laughs) This curtain that was super important, that was crazy thick, that was keeping people from the presence of God. What happened to it? It ripped from top to bottom. Now, I've got questions um, because I like to think of myself as a, 
as a real per like a like a um, a concrete thinker sometimes, and so like I want to know well how'd that happen? So if you're a math-minded person like me, and you're trying to do the math on that, it don't make sense. How could a really huge curtain just rip? Um, you can go to the book of Matthew. Matthew actually says that there was some sort of earthquake that occurred when Jesus breathed his last that actually left uh, cracks in the rock faces um, in and around Jerusalem. No other gospel authors give us that detail. So whether it was the, the earthquake itself that somehow ripped this or whether it was God himself just ripping it and not messing with anything else, that's the how. But the why, why? Why did God cause this to happen? Because I'll tell you, it seems like a strange detail. Because were we talking about the temple? I didn't know I didn't read the rest of Mark 15. But if you go back and read Mark 14, Mark 15, nobody's talking about the temple. And so when we hear that Jesus has just breathed his last, oh, by the way, uh, so at the temple, which was nearby, there's this big, huge curtain, and it ripped at the exact same moment. Anyway, back to the story. Like, it can sound like this, if you're just reading it and you're not looking for the hyperlinks, it can read like, why does Mark tell us that? That's weird. But when we're looking for the hyperlinks, when we're thinking about it, we'll recognize that there's so much significance here. Think about what was happening. Jesus, at the moment of his death, took on all the sinfulness of humanity. The sin that separates us from God. Did you hear that word? The sin that separates us from God. Where have we been talking about separation? Ah, the temple curtain. Right? The temple curtain. Our sin separated us from God just like the curtain separated us from God's presence. Just as Christ has taken my sins on himself and removed the barrier for me so that I can be in the presence of God in the same way his death tore the curtain down. This is a super symbolic image here. Doesn't mean much to us because you and I have never gone to the Jewish temple and seen the curtain. We haven't had to go and wait for the high priest to come out with our fingers crossed, hoping God didn't strike him down in there going, because uh, if the high priest doesn't come out, guess what? Your sins aren't atoned for. <laughs> so you're sitting there going, please, please, please live, please live, please live, please live. He comes out and goes, yeah, yes, God forgave us of our sins. That's what was happening. And you and I don't get that because we weren't there. You see how this adds weight to the death of Jesus. Listen to how the author of Hebrews speaks about this. This is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, sanctuary is another word for the most holy place. But do you hear that? We have boldness. So for the, for the Jews, that the author of Hebrews is talking about these guys that have, that have now trusted in Jesus. They were born going to the temple and making sacrifice, but now they recognize Jesus is, Jesus is the Savior and they recognize that. They're going, whoa, 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 enter boldly into the most holy place. I've seen the high priest, the guy who we're supposed to view as the most morally awesome spiritual person. He tiptoes up and is like sweating beads of sweat as he goes towards the temple or towards the most holy place. Like what? How can we enter boldly, he tells us, through the blood of Jesus? Christ has inaugurated for us a new and living way, not a dead way through the death of animals, but a new and living way through the curtain. Through his flesh, he compares the, the curtain being ripped open to Christ's flesh being ripped open and his presence 
being accessible to all. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. What is the author saying? That Jesus was the last high priest who entered the sanctuary for us to make a sacrifice. But instead of sacrificing a goat or a lamb or a bull or turtle doves, he killed himself. He allowed himself to be killed there in the most holy place. And he came out ripping the stinking door down. This is good. And the thing is, imagine going back to the temple the next week. This is what I love. Uh, in the first service, uh, Chad O'Dell, he talked to me after because he's, he's an image-driven guy like me. And he said, uh, he said I, I picture the intern, right? The intern that was working at the temple because it ripped after hours. So the priests have all gone home. They're like, hey, man, just keep a watch on things, make sure nothing happens. He's like, cool. And like, he's there and he's going to feel the earthquake and he turns around and like the curtain starts ripping and he's like grabbing it. Like, well, you know, like I'm going to be so dead. Um, I thought that was a cool image too. But the image I think about is going to temple the next week, the next day and seeing this huge curtain that everybody thought like was impenetrable, seeing a stitch from the bottom all the way to the top where they tried to sew that sucker back together, Right? If you had been there, if you had been, if you had been to the if you had been to the to the holy place and you had made sacrifices before, you would get the heaviness of this. There's no way you would look at that if you were going back to the temple. You would look at it and you would recognize that curtain ain't doing anything anymore. Jesus has opened the door to the presence of God and has left the door open to all who would call on Him in faith. We've got to recognize that the death of Jesus has this heaviness to us. Yes, it means our forgiveness of sins, but there's this very important Old Testament image that I believe is important for us to understand, even though we've never worshipped at a temple. There's another connection that's not, this is the subtext one. This is the one that's not mentioned directly, but when you read the whole story, you recognize what's going on. So if you're a note taker, just write down number two. I know I haven't given you note takers much today. Hang with me. We'll be back after Easter, okay? Um, number two, the Passover. The Passover. Here's, um, Mark tells us, and all most of the gospel writers make it clear that Jesus died on the prep, the day of preparation for the Jews. This was the day before the Sabbath. Okay, so I'm going to test you like I tested the first service. The Sabbath for the Jews was on Saturday, so the day before was. Y'all are awesome. Look at y'all. Y'all know your calendars well. This is why many, this is the day Christ died, the day before the Sabbath. He died on Friday. That's why a lot of churches are going to be gathering this week on Friday for what they call a Good Friday service. They're going to be remembering Jesus' sacrifice, his death. Now, the day of preparation was a big day for the Jews. They were prohibited from doing anything that looked or smelled like work on Saturday, which meant on Friday, you better get your yard cut, you better get your house cleaned, because folks will be coming over to your house. Shove everything in the closet. Get all that stuff done. Because on the Sabbath, you can't do it. You got to just chill out. You got to just relax and rest. You can't do any of this work. And so the, the, the day of preparation was a big day. But the week that Jesus died was a unique time that happened only once a year. It was not only just the day of preparation. It was the day after the Passover. It's the day after the Passover. And there's some dispute over 
the timeline of this, but I'm going to stick. I'm just going to tell you what I think. All right. But the Passover was an even more important time for them, for the Jews. It was. This is another one of these loaded words for the Jewish people. Uh, Passover is a Jewish holiday that kicks off the festival of unleavened bread. You want to read about that? It's all in Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read some of it here in a minute, but it's sometimes referred to as the festival of Passover, meaning really both parts. The Passover was this very reflective yet celebratory feast that occurred the night before this festival started. And this is what we see Jesus doing with his disciples. If you know, the night before Jesus is killed, where is he? You know what Jesus was doing the night before he was killed? He's with his disciples sharing a meal. We celebrate part of that meal is what we call the Lord's Supper when we take bread and we take juice and we drink that together representing the body and blood of Christ. But they didn't just share bread and juice. They shared a whole meal together because it was the Passover. It's called a Seder meal. Jewish people still share this meal together this Friday night is Passover for the Jewish people. Friday at sundown, Jewish people all over the world are going to be gathering to share a Seder meal together. But it's important that you know the deal behind Passover because it makes such an important hyperlink for us for Jesus' death and his sacrifice. Passover dates all the way back to Moses. Or if you're thinking in terms of the Bible, it's the second book, okay? Book two, right? All the way back to there. At this point, God's people have not yet been given a land. They're just nomads. They're moving around. In fact, they had just moved the whole family to Egypt a few generations earlier because there was a famine. And over time, they lost favor with the leaders of Egypt because they were hard to get along with. They are called pharaohs. And, um, and, the, and the, the uh, Israelite people become enslaved. During this time, the pharaoh also tries to enact some population control as any good leader not good leader, as any bad leader does. And the way he did it was to try to kill the firstborn of the Israelite homes. And his last-ditch effort was to, any time an Israelite boy was born, they threw him in the Nile River. It's a dark, awful, awful thing. But in the midst of this, God calls Moses, the shepherder, to lead God's people out of Egypt. And he promises to finally give them the land that he had told generations earlier that would be theirs. So do you think Pharaoh's going to be happy about it? I don't know about you. I've left a few jobs in my life. And I don't, I think, I think all of my bosses were unhappy that I left. I know there are some extenuating circumstances where maybe when you left, the boss wasn't sad and didn't try to get you to stay. Those situations exist. But in this situation, Pharaoh's looking at these probably probably a million Israelites by this point. There's a bunch anyway. And he's like, there goes our labor force. We, got, we can't let them go. And so Pharaoh is going to do everything he can. He's not going to let this happen easily. So God brings on Egypt a series of miraculous forms of judgment. We call them plagues. There are ten of them. They are crazy weird, and they are terrifying. For those that were going through them, it would seem as if the whole order of the world was coming undone, literally the clock being turned back on creation. The final plague. We won't go through the ten, but we do in Foundations. Another commercial. 
The final plague was a return on the evil that Pharaoh had done to God's people. In this tenth plague, the firstborn in every household and in the livestock of every yard would die by morning. But God makes a way in the midst of this judgment for people of faith. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12. And we're, see, we're going to see this and see why Passover is so important. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month that we're in right now is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year, calendar one. Tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month that they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one per family. The household is too small, they can go in together. But have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. Take it from the sheep or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They're going to take some of the blood and they're going to put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the house where they're eaten. Skip down a little bit. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, but both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You with me? Hint, hint, hint. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you. And you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You're to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. What we find out is that God makes this way for for people of faith to be saved. And the people of God were obedient in faith that God would protect them. So they all sacrificed a lamb or a goat. They took some of its blood, they put it on the doorpost and above the door, and their homes were spared. And just as God said, his people continued to remember the Passover throughout the generations. Even by Jesus' day, the practice of celebrating Passover was still a big deal, and it's an important part for the Jewish people today. God told them to remember it. So as you look back over this story, do you think there could be any significance that God, the sovereign Lord of all creation, chose Passover as the time in which Jesus would redeem his people. If you've paid attention to half of what I've said, I think you do. (laughs) There's a judgment coming for every household. And they cannot do or give anything of themselves to keep it from coming. But they can put something forward to take the judgment on their behalf. Someone else can die for them. Surely you're grasping it. Church, Jesus is the Passover lamb. What better time for Jesus to lay down his life than at Passover? This is why I think John the baptizer uh, that we see in the Gospel of John especially recognized this connection before Jesus' death as, as Jesus, bef- probably before Peter declared Jesus to be the Christ, G- John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Church, there was so much going on in Jesus' death, so much more going on than we often think about. Oftentimes we're more like my children, thinking only of how Jesus' death affects us. 
But if we'll become good students of the word of God, all the things that are important to us will become more important because we see the heaviness that's behind them. For the Jewish people of whom Jesus was one, Jesus was not just their savior like he, like he is for so many people. He was the long-awaited savior. For generations, they had lined up at the temple for sacrifice and had expected a high priest to go into God's presence on their behalf. And they waited on pins and needles asking God to accept their sacrifice. But now, as the author of Hebrews tells us, he has made a way for them and us to boldly approach God's presence. The presence of God that once was tiptoed toward can now be run to. God's changed the way that we would worship him. But he's also put all these festivals and traditions from the Old Testament in perspective. All the Passover lambs. Do some research. Do some research into that. It's unbelievable. The amount of, the amount of animals that would be killed at Passover. To the point that they say that the blood, there's old historians that will say that the blood, almost like a river coming down out of the temple. All this blood that was being shed year after year. And now they are no longer needed because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. Today, I want to do exactly as John the baptizer did. I just, want to, I just want to point to Jesus for a moment and say, he's not in here. I mean, he is, but Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, look to him. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, he is the Lamb who, who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus who fulfilled the Old Testament ideas, all these Old Testament ideas, he died for you. Today, you can trust in him as the Christ, the Messiah. The Bible says you need to repent of your sins. You need to trust, believe that Jesus was who he said he was. We're going to sing a song here in a minute. And as always, I'm going to stand back there at the back. I'm going to make you come forward. I'm just going to stand back there. If you need to come talk to me, say, hey, man, I'm not a Christian. That whole stuff, I need to trust in that. I'd love to walk you through what that looks like. I'd love to. I want to stand back there at the back during this last song. I'd love to talk with you. If you're in a Christian in the room, you're like, Heath, awesome. Hey, tell them about Jesus. Well, let me ask you. Like, have you begun to downplay the role of Jesus' death in your life? Like, has it, has it become so, has Jesus' death become, have you celebrated so many Easter's that it don't mean anything anymore? You've come to church so many times, you've heard the preacher stand up here and, and, and talk about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, that you've forgotten the heaviness of it? Well, I hope today through the word of God, you've seen that it's not just heavy for you. It's heavy because Christ, the entire book, is pointing forward to him. Jesus is not plan B, C, D, E, F. He's plan A. From the very beginning, God had a plan to redeem all of mankind, and it's through Jesus Christ. Today, you may need to do as I've done this week and just sit in that for a moment. Sing a song about Jesus, this beautiful, beautiful song that talks about Christ. Hopefully be able to sing it with a new appreciation for who he was and what he did. Sit in the heaviness that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. I'm going to say a word of prayer. And after I do, um, we're going to stand and sing. And again, I'll be at the back if you need help. 
uh, making any decisions. The altar will be open. If you want to come and pray up here, you're welcome to. People will be praying for you from where they are. You can pray right where you are uh, for other people or for yourself. But I'm going to be at the back to talk with you if you need me, okay? I'm going to say a word of prayer. And uh, after I do, let's worship.